In episode 74, I mentioned an incident that occurred in Los Angeles known as the Dalton Street Raid. There was a trial related to this incident going on at the same time the trial for Officer William Leisure was going on, the subject of episode 74, in the same courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. These two trials were both occurring in the wake of the beating of motorist Rodney King, so the LAPD was not looking very good at this point in the late 80s going into the 90s. We have discussed Rodney King and the riots that followed in a pair of episodes, number 32 and 33. So for this bonus, I wanted to elaborate further on the third case that was going on at the same time. In this bonus episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the Dalton Street Raid. In order to understand what the Los Angeles Police Department, which we will refer to as the LAPD from here on, to understand what was going on with the department at the time that this story takes place, it would behoove us to understand what the department's agenda was. In April of 1987, a group of people at a birthday party were gunned down in their front lawn in what was described as a gang-related drive-by shooting. The chief of police at the time, Daryl Gates, his answer to this was an all-encompassing crackdown and roundup of anyone suspected of being involved in gang activity. Incidentally, when I told Nick over at Orbital Jigsaw that episode 74 was on its way to be published and it was entitled The Dirtiest Cop in L.A., he asked me if it was about Daryl Gates. And Nick, he isn't even all that big on true crime. So, that's just a small testament as to the legacy left in the wake of Chief Gates' tenure as L.A.'s top cop. He immediately implemented what he called the Crash Initiative. I may have talked about this in the Rodney King episodes, as it would be the beating of Rodney King that would lead to Chief Gates' downfall. As once the official report conducted by the Christopher Commission found the LAPD to be encouraging a culture of excessive force and lackadaisical supervision, the report recommended the removal of Chief Gates. The mayor of Los Angeles at the time, Mayor Tom Bradley, also called for Gates's resignation as well. Though he refused early on, Gates finally announced his resignation on July 13, 1991, and officially left the force June 28, 1992. So CRASH was an acronym for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. It was considered to be an elite, yet controversial, special operations unit of the LAPD whose sole purpose was to combat gang-related criminal activity. And as I said, this was a Daryl Gates initiative because at the time, gang-related crimes were on the rise in the 80s, which consisted of violence over street territories related to drug dealing. Homicides in Los Angeles were the highest in the nation, reaching a record high by 1992 with nearly 2,600 homicides in that year alone, an 8% increase from the previous year. That is a lot of murders for a city. The good news is, since 2011, Los Angeles has not seen the number of homicides go over 300 victims and has consistently been lower in comparison 
to other major cities across the United States. And in the United States, the first city that comes to mind with a high murder rate is Chicago. And granted, the city does indeed have a high number of murders. But when in comparison to population, it would be St. Louis, Missouri that actually has the highest rate of murder per capita, followed by Baltimore, Detroit, New Orleans, Kansas City, Cleveland, Memphis, Newark, then Chicago. Los Angeles isn't even in the conversation anymore. In the department, this initiative was referred to as Operation Hammer, and its origins can be traced back to when Los Angeles was preparing to host the 1984 Summer Olympic Games. With Chief Gates at the helm, the LAPD greatly expanded their gang sweeps for the time period that the Olympics were going on. This covered most areas of the city, but primarily focused on South Central Los Angeles and East Los Angeles. At the peak of Operation Hammer, in April of 1988, 1,453 people were arrested by 1,000 officers in South Central Los Angeles in a single weekend. By the way, it is now known as South Los Angeles in order to move away from the stigma as being known as South Central. After the games, the LAPD began digging up old, archaic laws meant to shut down syndicalism or revolutionary takeover of the economy and government by direct means in order to keep these people locked up. The mass arrests of young African-American youth with the backing of laws that really didn't apply became commonplace. Most of those arrested were never even charged with anything and citizen complaints against the LAPD for their use of force increased 33% from 1984 to 1989. And so, in the midst of this ongoing Operation Hammer crackdown, on the warm summer evening of August 1st, 1988, a large-scale raid took place. The Los Angeles Times featured a story about the event more than a decade after it happened. It involved 88 LAPD officers initiating this raid on two apartment complexes located on the corner of 39th Avenue and Dalton Street in Los Angeles, located about three blocks west of the University of Southern California campus. It was said to have been an effort to search for drugs and to let it be known loud and clear that gang activity will not be tolerated. And this raid was an immense and brutal show of force on the part of every officer involved. They destroyed furniture. They punched holes in walls. They took framed family photos and callously smashed those onto the ground. They tore down cabinet doors from off their hinges. They took knives to sofa cushions. They took their batons to mirrors shattered those into millions of pieces. They broke apart porcelain toilets. They grabbed bottles of bleach and poured their contents all over people's clothing. They opened up refrigerators and dumped all the contents onto kitchen floors. 
Some officers even tagged up the walls of the apartments with graffiti with things like LAPD rules and rolling 30s die. The exact number of people who were living, not only in the apartments that were raided, but also in the surrounding areas, is not known. But it is said that it was several dozen. And many of them were brutalized by the police. Hit, punched, kicked, not to mention publicly humiliated. Yet, nobody was charged with a single crime. And dreamers, this raid... Guess how much drugs police confiscated as a result? Less than six ounces of marijuana and less than one ounce of cocaine. That was the haul. The damage done to the property of the residents of the Dalton Street Apartments was so devastating. The Red Cross came to the assistance of 22 people, adults and children, to offer help as they were left essentially homeless without any place to go or any clothing to wear. And when we talk about the Red Cross coming into situations to help, we hear about them mobilizing for natural disasters, earthquakes, floods, fires, tsunamis. But on this little street corner in Southwest Los Angeles, the Red Cross reached out to these people, not devastated by Mother Nature, but rather the LAPD. As these 88 LAPD officers rampage through those two apartment complexes, like if you ask me, in a manner that seemed to be the exact sort of behaviors they are supposedly tasked in combating, with their helicopters flying overhead, this may have been an opportunity for the powers that be within the department and the city to take a look at this incident and use it as an example of what doesn't work. Literally, nothing came of this. No major busts, lots of arrests, but no charges. Just a great deal of damage done to citizens of Los Angeles who were likely already struggling to begin with and they literally found nothing. This should have been a huge wake-up call for the department to look at the structure of their initiative, the undisciplined actions of their officers, and the desperate need to stop and listen to the people in the community. But no. Instead, the relationship between the LAPD and the community grew even more contentious more antagonistic, more divisive than ever. And then, within a couple of years of Dalton Street, Los Angeles would experience the beating of Rodney King, the ensuing civil uprising in the wake of the acquittal of the officers who beat him, and the LAPD scandal that rocked the department, commonly known as the Rampart Scandal. And a quick overview the Rampart scandal refers to a multitude of incidents of police corruption related to the crash unit of the Rampart Division of the LAPD in the late 1990s. More than 70 LAPD officers associated with this unit were implicated in a variety of police misconduct charges, 
and is to this day one of the largest cases of police corruption in United States history. Offenses of these officers included unwarranted shootings, beatings that were unprovoked, planting of evidence, stealing and selling narcotics, bank robbery, perjury, and the covering up of all of these activities. The investigation was based mainly on the word of crash officer Rafael Perez, who admitted to his wrongdoings, and in doing so, implicated more than 70 others in taking part in unlawful activities as well. Evidence was compiled to bring 58 of those officers before an internal administrative board. Of those, 24 were found to have committed any wrongdoing. 12 of those were given suspensions of various lengths. Seven were forced to resign or retire, and five were fired. And as a direct result of what was uncovered, 106 criminal convictions were overturned. There were more than 140 civil lawsuits filed against the city of Los Angeles, and the settlements cost the city approximately $125 million. To this day, the full extent of the corruption in the Rampart Division is unknown, and there remains several rape, murder, and robbery cases that are suspected of being committed by Rampart officers that are still unsolved. In the Times article, New York University law professor Jerome Skolnick said, quote, Dalton was the precursor. It should have sent a signal that parts of the department were out of control. The next signal, obviously, was the beating of Rodney King, followed by the Christopher Commission report, which laid out many of the problems. And even years after the Dalton Street raid, lives on both sides both the residents of those apartments whose homes were decimated, as well as the officers who participated in the decimation. The price paid was high, and many lives were irrevocably changed forever. Remember I mentioned that this whole thing was initially predicated by the 1984 Olympic Games being hosted in Los Angeles. And then a renewed urgency for a crackdown on gangs was brought about by the 1987 drive-by shooting at that birthday party. Well, there was another incident, this time in Westwood Village. The Westwood area of Los Angeles includes the sprawling UCLA campus and what is known as Westwood Village, a historical commercial district that caters to college students, with many popular restaurants, shops, as well as the Hammer Museum, the Geffen Playhouse, and the landmark Fox Theater. Adjacent to Westwood is one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in Southern California, Holmby Hills. In January of 1988, Karen Toshima was caught in the crossfire of a rival gang shootout that spilled out of the streets of the inner city and into the streets of posh Westwood. This killing was the one that shattered the perception that gang violence was confined to only certain areas of Los Angeles. That spring, with the blessings of the city council, Chief Gates sent Operation Hammer into overdrive, inundating the streets with officers, making thousands of arrests, gang members, 
non-gang members, guilty of something, guilty of nothing. It didn't matter. If you were a minority, especially a young African-American man, then you were in their sights. And when it came to 39th and Dalton, like I said, in the shadow of USC and the Memorial Coliseum, gangs and drugs were taking over the streets. And those who owned homes in the area lodged their complaints. Motorists were coming through all hours of the day and night. Gangsters and drug dealers who offered drive through services. One homeowner who had installed outdoor lighting to illuminate the front area of their home in order to ward off shady activities outside their house, woke up one morning to find their lights shot out. And the Southwest Police Station was only three blocks away from 39th and Dalton. Gang members were known to make anonymous phone calls to the station with threats of killing police officers. So police directed their attention to those two apartment buildings. But here's the thing. Drug dealers would sit on the front stoop of the buildings and they would sell their drugs on the corner, but they didn't actually reside at that specific location. So when the affidavit for the search warrant was filled out, the apartment was listed as a so-called stash house for the dealers who were selling the drugs on that corner. The captain of the Southwest Station, a man named Thomas Elfmont, was only on the job for five months when the Dalton Street raid went down. He commanded his officers to take back not just the two complexes on this corner, but the entire block. The officers under his direction were told unequivocally as they were being briefed before the raid to reduce both apartments to conditions in which they would be uninhabitable. He would deny ever making that statement to his officers. As the officers were preparing to execute the raid with the signed search warrant, the highest-ranking officer in charge at the scene was a sergeant. Looking back upon that, Captain Elfmont would admit that that was a mistake, stating, quote, The problem was, no one was in charge to execute the search warrant. There should have been at least a lieutenant on hand. Okay, but to that I would say, a group of grown men, and I don't know if any of the officers involved in the raid, if any of them were women, I believe that there were, but I'll say, okay, this group of grown humans who are officers of the law, should not need anyone to have to stop them and tell them, hey, you shouldn't be stampeding through these people's homes, leaving a path of destruction in your wake. This isn't the way we handle searches. Anybody who is in possession of a police badge should know better. You don't need a lieutenant to tell you that this is not okay. Even the entry level just sworn in and writing parking tickets police officer should know better. And this is what I'm talking about, dreamers. Here's an example of this. One of the officers who participated in this raid was a then 25-year-old rookie named Todd Perrick. He was the son of an LAPD officer and the great-grandson 
of a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy. From the time he was a child, he dreamed of becoming a police officer. He admired his dad immensely and his partner. Those were the men that he looked up to. Perrick would join the Navy, and he became a Navy SEAL. He stood an imposing 6 foot 5 inches tall, or 1.96 meters. So, clearly, he was born and bred for this. He joined the LAPD in 1987, and according to the LA Times, Gates had just made the comparison of the violence on the streets of Los Angeles to being akin to the violence in Beirut, which at the time was embroiled in civil war. Once Perrick got into the apartment complex, when the raid had commenced, he seriously lost it. In his own words, quote, I probably got a little out of control. So dreamers, what's a little out of control, you ask? Well, he picked up an axe and I don't know where this axe came from, if they brought it with them as a part of the raid to break down doors, or if it was in the apartment. I'm assuming the officers brought equipment with them, and an axe may have been a part of that. Perrick began wielding the axe so violently, using the implement to destroy furniture and walls, that the officers in close proximity to him began to worry that he was going to hurt himself or someone else. Perrick would say of this, quote, I was a rookie. If I was out of control and doing something wrong, how come nobody told me to stop? No one said, cut it out. Again, I say, this is a grown man who has been a Navy SEAL. He may have seen combat. If I do the math, he would have been just old enough to have been in the first Gulf War, perhaps. So yeah, if you need to be told to not axe up people's furniture and walls when searching for drugs, then you really have no business being on the police force. You'd be better off in the mafia or some underworld organization like that. And from what some have said about the department and their policies, what happened at Dalton Street that wasn't anything exceptional. That was the rule. If a home or apartment was being raided for drugs, the place was literally turned upside down. Narcotics investigator Carl Sims told the Los Angeles Times, quote, There wasn't a lot of care taken. That was the mentality. At the time, if you were selling dope, we were going to knock your house down with a battering ram and we were going to dump the sugar on the counter. It was a standard method of operation for the LAPD. We weren't just searching for drugs. We were delivering a message that there was a price to pay for selling drugs and being a gang member. With that mentality, 39th and Dalton was born. I looked at it as something of a Normandy beach, a D-Day. So yeah. This guy's comparing going into somebody's apartment as storming the beaches of Normandy. 
That's how ridiculous these police officers were. One tenant that was busted in on was Gloria Flowers. She was in the middle of a bath. She hurriedly got out of the tub, stark naked, to get to her children. She heard the sounds of breaking glass, and then all of a sudden, she had officers breaking down her door, guns pointed at her, forcing their way into her apartment. She told the LA Times, I got about as far as the bathroom door, and then the police kicked the apartment door in, and the next thing I knew, there was a gang of police officers in my house, pointing their guns at me. I tried to cover myself when a lady officer said, get your hands over your head and lay on the floor. Another officer threw a blanket on me. She asked them what was going on. She was told she was being evicted. Johnny Mae Carter was in her apartment watching Jake and the fat man when police kicked in her door and ordered her to leave the apartment. Her 21-year-old son, Raymond Carter, was just coming back to the apartment with some pizza when his vehicle was pulled over. They asked him for his driver's license, and when they saw that his address was the same as the building that they were raiding, the officers were like, yep, you're one of them. He asked, one of what? And they told him to stop playing stupid. They ordered him out of the car and onto the front yard. They handcuffed him and laid him face down. His mother was outside too, and he could hear her asking for her blood pressure medications. While inside, officers were obliterating her furniture and demolishing her walls. Raymond told the LA Times, quote, It was like the apartment had been hit by a pack of wild animals. The following day, Captain Elfmont went to the apartments to survey the damage himself. It seemed as though the police officers who conducted the raid claimed that the damage was done by gang members. But Elfmont apparently did not believe that, and he supposedly began gathering evidence to bring charges against the officers. The raid did effectively get the drug dealers to leave the corner of 39th and Dalton. But the truth is, they just moved to another corner. Of the raid... The former assistant chief, David Dodson, said, quote, The management failures were so obvious. The department was preparing people as if they were going to war. A police officer's job is not war. It's solving complex problems on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis. That's a difficult job, and it doesn't require screaming at people or putting their faces down in the street like dogs. What it boiled down to was these officers were conducting themselves in a manner which they felt that the rules, policies, and standards were not applicable to them. And from there, the corruption within only grows because soon, more and more rules, eventually laws, do not apply leading only to other forms of abuses of power. When the Christopher Commission was formed to review the Rodney King beating, which took place some two and a half years later, they also reviewed the Dalton Street raid as well. In their findings, they determined there to be an incredible lack of control over the police department 
by the City Council, the Board of Police Commissioners, and those appointed by the mayor to oversee the department. It was a failure on many levels, with the reporting stating, Police commissioners were kept only marginally informed on the progress of the department's own investigations. The 39th and Dalton Raid and the police commission's failure to investigate or exercise any oversight in the aftermath of the raid prompted some, including city council members, to express serious doubts about the police commission's effectiveness in providing citizen oversight of the police department. Three of the officers involved in the Dalton Street Raid were charged with misdemeanor vandalism in 1991. This was the court case that was going on a few courtrooms down from Officer William Leisure's trial. They were being prosecuted by Deputy District Attorney Christopher Darden, who, as many of you know, became a household name a few years later as one of the prosecutors in the O.J. Simpson case. And all three of those officers charged with vandalism were acquitted. How is that possible? Well, according to Darden, his case was crippled by the quote-unquote code of silence amongst officers in the LAPD. They were simply unwilling to testify against each other. It was clear to Darden, stating, quote, In Dalton, you have 70 or more officers. You have mass destruction. You have a series of civil rights violations in the presence of police officers, done by police officers, sanctioned by command-level officers. What happens? What do we do about it? In the DA's office, what we did was file misdemeanors. But it was all for naught. They were acquitted of all criminal charges. But that's not to say that there weren't consequences, because there were. At least two officers were fired from the force. As many as 25 were suspended without pay. Many lawsuits were filed against the city, but never went to trial. The city was not going to fight those suits. Los Angeles paid out approximately $4 million in damages to more than four dozen residents, property owners, and those taken into custody in the raid. It was one of the highest settlements the city had ever paid. The fallout of this raid would have an enduring effect on the residents, of course, but also the lives and careers of the officers involved. Captain Elfmont would go on to retire from the force much earlier than he'd planned. Looking back on it, some years later, he told the LA Times, It was a major screw-up. My career was over. It was obvious. Am I bitter? Yeah, I'm bitter. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Following the Dalton Street raid, Elfmont was removed from his job as captain at the Southwest Station and sent to the San Fernando Valley to the Traffic Division. Then, he was sent to communications. And from there... His career sputtered to an end. The rookie that we discussed earlier, the Navy SEAL, Perrick. He was super proud of his handiwork at the Dalton Street Apartments. As he was headed home that day from work, he was thinking that he and his fellow apartment destroyers would be receiving commendations for what they had done that evening. 
As he arrived home, I can only imagine how excited he was to tell his wife what they'd done that day. But she was not thinking along the same lines as her husband. She had a bad feeling about this, and her initial reaction was that her husband was going to lose his job. Well, it ended up that he did not lose his job over the Dalton Street incident. But three years later, Officer Perrick would end up headbutting someone he was placing under arrest. And then later on, he lied about the headbutt. And this would end up costing him his job. And from there, Perrick's life just kind of spiraled downward. He fell into a deep depression as he was unable to support his still-growing family. When he was on the verge of losing his job with the LAPD, he and his wife were expecting their second child. So he had to request that their doctors induce the labor early so his family's medical benefits were still active and the costs would be covered. Perrick had difficulty finding work that came anywhere near the salary that he was earning with the LAPD. He took one low-paying job after another, but it wasn't nearly enough for them to stay afloat. Sinking into debt, the couple went bankrupt and ended up losing their home. By 2001, he was a salesman at an RV dealership in Mesa, Arizona. To the LA Times, he said, As you get older, you look back on your life and see the mistakes. I believed I was doing the right thing by routinely stopping people on the street, hauling them into the police station to be fingerprinted and photographed. In hindsight, that is not what this country stands for. It wasn't right. As Officer Sims, the narcotics investigator, the one who wrote the search warrant affidavit for the Dalton Street Apartments, his name was one of several listed on the Christopher Commission's scathing report that called out specific officers as being particularly problematic within the department. Officer Sims was on this list. He ended up leaving the LAPD and went clear across the country to Gwinnett County, Georgia, and he joined their sheriff's department. His career seemed to recoup nicely as he rose through the ranks to the position of division commander. But the skeletons in his closet came creeping out eventually. He decided to run for sheriff of an adjacent county. But when the local newspaper started digging, they uncovered his connection to the Dalton Street raid from years past. The whole thing happened because of the warrant that he wrote. Once his past hit the papers, he took his name out of the running for sheriff. He told the LA Times, people don't want to vote for someone like that. The article made me look like one of the officers who beat Rodney King. It made me look like a Rampart officer. Um, they're not wrong. I'm thinking the actions taken that evening at the Dalton Street Apartments were just as scandalous as those other incidents of police corruption. So yeah, no, you do look that bad. And despite a hefty settlement paid out to the victims that suffered losses the evening of the Dalton Street raid, money did not really help anyone when all was said and done. Unfortunately, 
the sudden windfall didn't change things for the residents for the long term. It actually seemed to be more of a curse that brought about a unique set of challenges and tragedies. Once the victims of the Dalton Street were paid, it was like everyone was on one big shopping spree. According to longtime resident of the neighborhood, Liz Brooks, as she told the LA Times, it was like one big party for a while. They all ran out and bought cars, but the money ran out and everything went back to the way that it was. It got even worse. 23-year-old Sandra Garbett shortly after she received her portion of the settlement money, was shot and killed in a robbery gone bad. Gloria Flowers used thousands and thousands of dollars that she received in the settlement to support a drug habit that had plagued her life. Her husband didn't help matters by squandering whatever there was left that hadn't been spent on drugs. To Gloria, the money was indeed a curse that she wishes to just forget about. Raymond Carter and his family tried to get some stability in their lives. The four of them who received money from the settlement put it all together to purchase a home in Inglewood. A big home. Six bedrooms. But they simply were unable to sustain what it costs to own a home. Coupled with some apparent bad investments and medical bills mom incurred from battling cancer, the Carter family would end up losing their home as well. Hildebrandt Flowers took his money and invested in a car wash business. He even saw some of the officers who participated in the raid come through. But his car wash business floundered. And even a big windfall of money isn't going to erase the demons of the past. Hildebrandt Flowers as well, long battled drug addiction. And it seemed as though he began having more encounters with the police after the settlement. He lost his car wash and for a time, he was trying to work towards turning his life around. He tried working with troubled youths and counseling those involved in street gangs. But the drugs and the law continued to dog him until he lost that job as well. In 2000, he was arrested yet again for cocaine possession. A judge sent him to rehab. He told the LA Times that he was going to tackle the problems in his life head on. He had to walk away from the gangs and the drugs. And part of this was getting rid of the tattoos that indicated his association with the Harlem Crips rolling 30s. He told the Los Angeles Times that he wasted so much of his life. Whether or not Hildebrandt Flowers was able to turn his life around, I don't think we'll ever know. And that, my dreamers, is the tale of the Dalton Street Raid. I could not help but to imagine what that scene looked like that day when they went into those apartments and rain down all that destruction on people's homes. In the hundreds and hundreds of small tragedies in every single person's life that happened in the years to follow, for everyone involved, police and residents alike, I would even venture to say that this is one of the rare occasions where both sides 
of the thin blue line were equals. Nobody won. And it was all for less than six ounces of weed and less than one ounce of Coke. Thank you for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.